women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants to hear your voice. Welcome back to She Roars, a podcast about change and the Princeton women who drive it forward before, during, and after their time here on campus. My name is Margaret Koval, and my guest today is Emily Carter. Emily's been a professor in the School of Engineering and Applied Science here for 15 years. She became the founding director of the school's Anlinger Center for Energy and the Environment in 2016. And for the last three years, she's led the engineering school as its very charismatic dean. Sadly for us, Emily has just accepted a new position as the Executive Vice Chancellor and Provost for the University of California, Los Angeles. Emily, I'm so glad I could get you in here before you leave town. Thank you for coming. It's my pleasure. I, I want to get out there at the very beginning, uh, the fact that you and I first became friends more than 20 years ago. I'm afraid to count exactly, but more than 20 years ago when our kids were in daycare together and then elementary school together on the UCLA campus. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, my family was part of the UCLA community, and you were just starting your career there, essentially, right? Yeah, I started there actually in 1988. Oh, wow. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you and I met I think in 1996, probably, that, 1995, maybe, yeah. and uh, and have been friends ever since. Yeah, but now you're going back as basically the second in command of the university, one of the biggest universities in the world. Tell me what the job looks like. What, what, what would you be doing? Well, this particular position is, uh, it, if you look on the, the website, mm-hmm. um, it is the chief operating officer and the chief academic officer of the university uh, you know to give you some some point of reference here those are two separate jobs the executive vice president um, and the provost mm-hmm. and uh, this job that I'm taking on is both of those roles at a university which is more than five times the size yeah, so it's okay. so it's a huge undertaking but it's really exciting because you know you you really have the opportunity together with the chancellor to push the university and uh, the entire community forward. Yeah. So you, obviously that was going to be one of my top questions. What are, what what are the big challenges that excite you the most that made you really want to take this job? Well, what I can tell you is that I painted a vision for uh, the leadership that I spoke to. Um, they they had approached me actually in January. And initially, I can tell you that I, my initial response was, nope, I'm not <laughs> interested. I uh, have um, just loved Princeton intensely and in all the time I've spent here. It's been, I've told people uh, many times, it, it is my uh, intellectual home. It's mm-hmm. the place that I have felt most at home intellectually in my whole life. And yeah. it's very difficult to leave. It was a very difficult decision to leave. And I'm only leaving because I really, uh, especially since I became the founding director of the Anlinger Center in 2010, um, that was the moment for me after I started building the Anlinger Center for Princeton to realize how meaningful it is to do something so much larger than yourself Mm -hmm. and to have such, to have the uh, possibility of having an enormous impact. And so for me, it was very meaningful to do that for the Anlinger Center, uh, because I cared so deeply about uh, the environment and and uh, finding solutions to make sure to preserve um, the planet for future generations. Uh, but then, you know, uh, once it was built, then I, it, I have to say I get 
I do I got to the point where I thought, okay, I've I've put my imprint on this. It's probably time for someone else to come in with some fresh ideas and and then I was fortunate enough that um, th- that the timing was right uh, and the, the university uh, felt that I was the right person to lead the School of Engineering forward. And I think that, uh, you know, that offered me the opportunity then to uh, to really push in other areas. And so, every, so the reason I bring all that up is because I'm really a person about always looking. I wake up every day. How can I have the most impact today? Uh-huh. And how can I basically have greater impact? And so the, the, the thing that was so compelling to me and the vision that I painted for UCLA was that, I mean, there are many – Many issues that uh, that UCLA could grapple with, but one that I think is incredibly important and 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 um, could be transformative in so many ways, not just at UCLA, but but all over the world, is to engage really deeply with Los Angeles um, beyond the many ways that UCLA already does, but to be thinking about something which actually came to the fore in. Uh, our priorities within the School of Engineering, which is to think about the future of cities mm-hmm. and to think about how we can uh, use Los Angeles as a beautiful multicultural test bed, mm-hmm. being very sensitive to different cultures. You know, if you look at Los Angeles, uh, you know this well, that yeah. people often say that you pick any country on the planet and you ask, where is the largest population outside of that country? And oftentimes the answer is Los Angeles. Yeah. And so the idea that you that we would have a, a, a way of reaching out to all of these different cultures that just already exist in Los Angeles and finding ways to, to think through how future metropolises will uh, um, can be formulated and um, and evolve um, to be sustainable, to be equitable, to be resilient, uh, you know, and um, and worth living in. Yeah. You know, well, the, you know, I'm not an urban planner by any stretch, but I can certainly see how UCL, I mean, sorry, how Los Angeles uh, is in so many ways a perfect laboratory for everything that you just described. I mean, it's so much the city, in a lot of ways, the city of the future. We've got you know, huge climate change problems, huge transportation problems, immigration issues, you know, everything that is part of the public discourse about you know, urban life. So yeah. Fascinating. So I, so I, so I said that this to me seemed to be the thing that, that UCLA could really lead on mm-hmm. and it would involve all parts of campus, you mm-hmm. know? And so my hope is, you know, I've pitched this idea to the leadership. I hope to galvanize and inspire the faculty and the students and the staff, um, the whole community to decide that this is going to be UCLA's future. I mean, mm-hmm. of course they will do many things, but this could be really, so for me, that was incredibly exciting because I think then if I if I can do that, mm-hmm. um, then you know what we learn from those those trials, um, those 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 um, investigations. Hopefully, all of the best practices that result could be translated to the re- to cities all over the world. And you know, basically, the way cities go is the way the planet's going to go because over half the population lives in cities currently, and it's it's only, only, getting, go- only getting going bigger. to grow. Yeah, of course. I wonder if you could reflect back because um, to me, you're an institution at Princeton. You've been here for, as I said, 15 years. I wonder if you have any. Um, what will you think of as your uh, biggest accomplishments as a university leader here on campus? I'm very proud of what I 
together with many partners and, and much help built uh, in terms of the lasting legacy of the Anlinger Center. Um, the fact is that I, I realized at the grand opening that we had in 2016, I all of a sudden I realized I was the one faculty member that saw the in, uh, that building through from beginning to end. Yeah. Uh, and just to kind of repeat what the Anlinger Center does, it's the Anlinger Center for Energy and the Environment. So it's right at the nexus of um, so many issues, but obviously climate change and, and resources. And yeah. Well, so, so for me, th- this was incredibly meaningful to be able to start building something from scratch and to hire all the people, the, the, the staff and the faculty jointly with departments and to build up this incredible group of, of fantastic um, faculty, uh, mostly junior faculty, that uh, were joint with departments um, all over the engineering school, but also the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab, the Woodrow Wilson School, and the School of Architecture right. and and psychology. And so I think, you know, having been able to do that, that's a big part of my legacy. I think also, you know, the building, of course, is 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 I think beautiful. Really beautiful, and, I would and, agree. And it uh, and it you know is a model of sustainability. It's uh, you know it actually won. Uh, I was really very proud of this. It, it was named one of the top 10 architectural projects of 2016 no, I didn't know that. Um, by Architectural Digest, I think, is uh, is the magazine. So, you know, it, it's a beautiful building. But then in addition to that, uh, uh, there are you know, all of the programs that we put in place. So the School of Engineering had already started a sustainable energy certificate for the undergrads, um, mostly a, a technical certificate. I was involved in, in that mm-hmm. um, at, at the inception as well, uh, which now resides in the Anlinger Center. But w- one thing that was done under my watch was to start another certificate program for the undergrads that um, that was aimed more at the humanities and social science students mm-hmm to learn about the intersection between energy, technology, and society. So that's, you know, so there was a lot of educational initiatives. The public education project that I'm so proud of, um, that I recruited Rob Sokolow, who um, is a giant in uh, the field of real pioneer in the field about technology solutions to to mitigate climate change. And I recruited him to this public education project we called, uh, I dubbed it, the Energy Technology Distillates Project, which mm-hmm. is on the web, which looks at, teaches any interested layperson the key ideas associated with emerging energy technologies. Mm-hmm. And and these ideas are not just the technical ones, they're, they're the economic ones and, and the policy issues, et cetera. Uh, and so very proud of that. You know, we started a, a corporate affiliates program. The current director, um, Lynn Liu, was my deputy director, um, and she really ran with that mm-hmm. as, as her portfolio to start up um, those kinds of interactions. So many different things. So I'm very proud of, of that. I feel like the legacy is that now people are looking around the country and saying, wow, this is a very substantive uh, uh, center in this area, more substantive 
um, I would argue that it, than at many of our competitors, <laughs> and um, and it uh, you know and that's great because it will be needed for centuries, and and I feel great that I was uh, hu- you know huge yeah. part of getting it going. Yeah, no, it's something that the university is intensely proud mm-hmm, of, and mm-hmm. um, and it, 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 incredibly vibrant part of the community too. So I find myself going there quite a bit. Yeah, good. You described so kind of you you hinted on this a second ago, or hinted at this a second ago, back in two thousand and seven. You've told me before. You had a kind of a a revelation or an epiphany that utterly redirected your sense of academic and intellectual mission. It it does inform your decision to move to the Annalier Center, but I wonder if you could describe that. Sure. So what happened for me is that in early 2007, the latest version of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report came out, and I read the executive summary of the science portion of it. It's an enormous document, so I didn't have time to read the whole thing. (laughs) But but I read it, Mm -hmm. and I was it was just like an awakening for me. Um, I had not, you know, I just, I had been doing my science and... Um, happily so. Happily so, and teaching and training students and uh, for 20 years, and roughly. And I, uh, and, I'd, and I'd been, of course, enjoying it and having a good career. But all of a sudden, I... Uh, the fact that they had that they said in that report that at the 95% confidence level that climate change... Uh, was coming and it was and it was being it was being caused by humans burning fossil fuels, and it all made sense. The science completely made sense. This was not conjecture. Anyway, the point is that I decided at that moment I was not you know I'm ha- still having fun, but I, I wasn't just going to have fun. Mm-hmm. I was I was going to be very intentional and purposeful that every grant proposal that I wrote from then on and every every project I decided to work on had to be making use of my expertise to um, to try to get us off of fossil fuels, to work on sustainable energy technologies. Yeah, I find this um, a great expression of the service ethos of the university, but also, uh, frankly, an expression of your personality. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a couple of things that you've told me about in the past that I'd think are particularly interesting. So you you redirected your research group and um, you moved into a couple of areas that are really exciting and, and sound beyond space age in some levels. Negative emission technologies, I think, and, and even more space agey artificial photosynthesis. Uh, we don't have a uh, we don't have a month. I wonder if you can summarize for somebody who's no expert in the field what those things are. Maybe negative yeah. emission technologies would come first. Well, they're related, mm-hmm. and and so um, negative emission technologies. So what it refers to is is how can we essentially think about taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and out of the emission streams of of industry, uh, and potentially out of the tailpipe, mm-hmm. uh, because what you know, as we know, when when there there are many, uh, of course, the the simplest is burning any fossil fuel produces because it has carbon in it. It produces carbon dioxide, mm-hmm. and carbon dioxide is the most ubiquitous greenhouse gas right now. It's not the mo- most severe, but it is um, the most ubiquitous. And um, and so the idea of negative emissions technologies is to find ways to capture the carbon dioxide either from, for example, a cement plant or a steel plant or a or a power plant that is at quite high concentration coming out of those um, and 
uh, and do something with it um, permanently. And so in particular, there's this concept of, of, of carbon sequestration underground. Um, we have um, excellent people in civil environmental engineering here who work on that. That's the idea behind negative emission technologies. Now, in my own research, uh, one of the things I've worked a lot, a lot on is, is essentially how can we run combustion backwards? Mm -hmm. Okay, so combustion of, of, of fossil fuels produces CO2 and water. Could we take CO2 and water and renewable energy, either, either sunlight um, uh, or, or wind, it doesn't really matter, uh, agnostic as to what it, what it comes from, and use those, uh, the electricity as the, as the source of energy to run combustion backwards to recreate fuels. And what you could do then is create a virtuous cycle where you're not having to pull um, hydrocarbons out of the ground and then net getting more into the atmosphere, but maybe reusing the carbon dioxide that oh. has already been burned and having a, a cycle where you're, you're not producing more of it. Wow. Okay. And so we we um, work on the discovery of materials that can do those kinds of chemical transformations. All right. Will you be able to keep doing this? Work? This is really important work. Will you be able to keep this kind of work going when you are in your new position? I'm going to try. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's clear that I'm also really proud of the work that I've done as dean mm -hmm. and, and in terms of pushing what uh, the the research priorities of of the school forward, and also in terms of amplifying our visibility. I think we're this hidden gem, and and I think that um, we've really amped up what we do in terms of communications and messaging, and and I think that's also some. Those are all things I'm I'm very proud of. The work that we ha have done to move um, our our work in bioengineering and data science and. Um, and, and robotics and the future of cities along. I'm, I'm also very proud of that. That's, I, I didn't quite answer your question. What I want to say, and the reason I brought all that up is because I managed to do, to do all of that, to lead all of that, um, while, um, I should say I did it, I, I led it, mm -hmm. and of course in concert with many other people, but um, I still managed to keep a very active research portfolio uh, somewhat shrunk from from the Anlinger Center days a little bit by about a third. Mm -hmm. Now clearly this job is is enormous and um, and there are going to be many demands on my time, but I really do want to keep a small effort going. I think I, I love doing science. It's what I it's yeah. been my life um, you know, it's been my life. I don't want to give it up completely. And so I'm planning to keep a couple of projects going with a few people. And um, and it's going to be a transition period. I'll still have people here for a while. Uh, and I'll be going back and forth. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've been looking at some data that starts in about the time we met, about 1995, looking at women in the workforce in, in science and engineering and math, and they include social science in this. And the kind of surprising thing is, in certain categories, engineering, for example, way down at the bottom, computer science and math has actually dropped as a percentage. Women have dropped in those fields as a percentage of the overall workforce uh, since 1995. Biological science has gone up, social science has, has, has gone up, and so on and so forth. I'm just wondering uh, what you think is behind those trends, if you have any views on that. Sure. I mean, I think they're, they're societal. I mean, it, you know, little girls get messages. In fact, there's work that's been done here uh, partially by our dean of the graduate school, Sarah Jane Leslie, mm -hmm. about you know, the fact that there's a sea change from kids who are six years old to seven years old, that there's a step function change in their own self-perceptions of what they can do. Hmm. They're getting messages, media messages, of what is right for 
girls to do, hmm. you know, and and that is that's still going on, you know, which is really um, it's really frustrating. Uh, and, you know, you hope you sort of hope that those messages die out, but they get propagated to the next generation, yeah. you know, and it's it's very frustrating. Um, and so I think what one has to do is is be very intentional about getting the right messages out there. You know, and so I I try to do that whenever I can. But I'm you know I'm just one person. But what what we've been trying to do, and all that one can do, is is to work within your own sphere of influence. And so I can tell you that when I came in as dean, um, you know, we weren't doing badly. I, I, we were uh, the this undergraduate population was about thirty six percent female. Mm-hmm. Um, but it should be 50% female. This is this is no reason. This is Princeton. We should be leading. We shouldn't be behind. And so I went and talked with the dean of admission, and I said, what's going on? Why can't we get to 50%? And so uh, I don't know what ended up happening. You know, I'm sure lots, you know, maybe they were now more intentional of looking for more women interested in engineering. I don't know. But um, I also changed. Um, I, I sent out a welcome letter, and I and I put language in the letter. Again, messaging I think is so important. So those kids that were admitted got a different kind of letter than than they had received before. Where I focused on the fact that you know there are studies which show that women are really interested in serving society. In fact, and I always describe engineering as science in service of society. Yeah. And so in the letter, I talked about you know if you like science and math. Um, and you must because you signed up as a BSE, you know, mm-hmm. know that you are going to be part of the solution of all the world's problems and know that you'll be able to. Another thing women like is is they're social animals. They like to work together. And so to talk about it not as a hierarchy but as teamwork right. and and also to talk about creativity mm-hmm. and uh, and the cre- and because engineering is creative. You're trying to come up with creative solutions. And, and in fact, today there's – a real um, something we're starting to stress in the Keller Center for Innovation Engineering Tech, uh, Engineering Education is design thinking. Mm-hmm. Design thinking um, is a is a concept that came out of business that is a that is that says start with empathy for your client. Figure out what the needs are. Well, you know, so if you if you talk about the fact that engineering is about you know teamwork, design, creativity, uh, empathy, um, I think those are all things, and service to society. I think those are all things that appeal to women. Yeah. Um, and so, um, so as a result, that year, the, my first year, at in June, um, the the matriculants, uh, so the people who had agreed to come as BSE students, were fifty fifty. Wow, that's a so rapid switch. And and it's been like that each year. Um, and but. Uh, since then, but well, there's only two data points. I don't. Have, I don't know. We haven't reached June, so right. I'm hoping that's yeah. going to be true this this June. But, but the but those two years, it was true. However, that said, then what happens is um, over the summer. So that was very good. But then over the summer, there's a bunch of under uh, un, undecided uh, students that decide then to switch into the BSc program, which mm-hmm. is great. Uh, we welcome all comers. Mm-hmm. Turns out they skew male, uh-huh. and so by the entering class um, was now. Uh, the first, uh, the first year uh, after I became dean, um, that next entering class was forty three percent, and and then this next year was this past September was was forty four percent. So we're inching up. Yeah. Um, uh, so that's good. So there's the admissions. I mean, you have to look, sort of look at the whole uh, career arc, and so there's the admissions. Then then of course it's retention, because we had learned that. And this is something very important. Um, if you look at the statistics, so first of all, um, we 
on average, we're losing about 20% of the BSEs we're transferring out to the AB program, which I don't, you know, it's not a loss. And BSE is? Sorry, uh, Bachelor's of Science of Engineering. So there was there was a real sense among our faculty that we needed to offer a new pathway. And so um, we spent two years uh, developing uh, a, a new curriculum that is an, an, another pathway. We're not, we're not trying to um, say that it should be the only pathway, but we offer now a pathway that we're in our second year of this pilot of teaching um, students, especially what we're aiming at is the students who come in being passionate about the idea of what engineering can do for the world, but through no fault of their own, you know, grew up in a zip code where they went to a high school that didn't have calculus, for yeah. example. I, I went to one of those. Yeah, okay? as did I. Okay. And, and so um, we want to make sure that those kids don't get lost. And, mm-hmm. and so we are teaching and what because I think a lot of a lot of kids who come in, if they're not quite up to the fast pace, then the, they get discouraged in those math and physics classes um, and they find that um, and then they don't have anything to to balance that discouragement. Yeah. And so what we wanted to do, we're not, you know, nothing has been dumbed down. It's very challenging. But what we're doing is we're teaching them the math and physics they need to be successful in any of the engineering disciplines um, through the lens of engineering examples. Uh So we're hoping that while they will struggle, because it's hard and they'll struggle. We hope they'll struggle, but still be inspired yeah. so that they'll stay with it. And we have data, again, for one year. So that's only one data point. But we went from a 20% attrition rate last year among these this, this pilot group um, to a 6% attrition rate. Wow, that is very impressive. And this class was 70% women. Wow, very okay. impressive. Yeah, and I should say that uh, in addition to the twenty percent attrition rate, the other thing—maybe I said this—I'm sorry, but if if I repeat this—but we were disproportionately losing um, women and underrepresented minorities in that first year. Yeah, you did. And we completely that. turned that around. Well, congratulations. That's really good to hear. Um, you presented at the She Roars conference back in October. Yes. And you've told me subsequently that it was the first time in your life that you'd presented before an audience that was predominantly female, which just kind of blew me back a little bit. And uh, I guess I thought two things. Uh, I thought, on the one hand, was it different? Did you get a different vibe from the room? I mean, different subject, of course. But also, does it matter? And and I know it matters, I feel very strongly, we all do, I think it very, it very much matters for women to be in a room full of um, welcoming scientists or, or whatever. Does it matter for society? So that's, well, I think it matters for society in the following sense. If a woman feels that she doesn't belong, or if an underrepresented minority feels that they don't belong, they're going to leave. Why should they? Life's too short. Why be in a hostile environment, right? Um, And so that means we lose their talent. And that is heartbreaking to me. Okay. So for me, it's incredibly important. And so I'm glad you're giving me a chance to say a little bit more about this, because in addition to what we've done for the undergraduates, um, you know, we are focusing on developing the talent at the graduate level, at the postdoc level, and at the faculty level. And and so um, in particular, I I want to say that um, when I came in as dean, I wanted to be able to create the space to hire a full-time person who could work on these issues of diversity and inclusion as an associate dean. And it took us two years, but we got a fantastic person who came in August 
Um, Dr. Julie Yoon, who's a clinical psychologist but cares as deeply as I do about these issues. And she, um, um, in even in less than one year, has made a huge difference. It just makes such a difference to have a full-time person who's in intentional about it. And what we did is, again, it comes back to messaging. Mm -hmm. We focused on graduate recruitment um, as a first start, and we focused on underrepresented minority graduate recruitment because we have not done well in that area. And again, if you just sit back and you wait for people to apply, they're not going to apply. You mm -hmm. need to you need to, to tell people, we want you. We're, we value your talent. And um, and we want to tell you that when you're here and, 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 and support you while you're here. Um, and so uh, because we know, I mean, coming back to this issue about, you know, what's different about being in a room where you're in the majority or the minority, right. um, there are studies which show that if unless you get to 30% of a certain uh, type of person, that type of person is marginalized. What Julie did together with um, my director of communications, uh, Stephen Schultz, um, is to put together a beautiful messaging program which really was founded on research we did about what students care about, what their concerns are. and. Uh, and 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 we focused on we did data mining we we identified people we thought would have the talent to succeed at Princeton, and um, and then we started sending these messages out and I can tell you that this year um, the number of, of of applicants to the School of Engineering who were underrepresented minorities went up by forty six percent. Okay, so this is what can happen when you are intentional um, about building pools. And then finally, on the on the faculty side, we're we're doing that intentional messaging as well. We're reaching out proactively. That's the plan: is to start reaching out proactively to fourth and fifth year graduate students who those are the people that that will become the future faculty to encourage them to think about us. Um, and then. What about the people who are here? Well, when I came in as dean, I realized that there were departments that had only one or two women faculty, or one, you know, one underrepresented minority faculty. And so I started networking uh, meetings so that the, those faculty could meet each other across the school. Because a huge part of being a minority, either a woman or, or an underrepresented ethnic or racial minority, is that you feel isolated and you get discouraged. And so these networking meetings, I think, have been really good. We have ones for women and faculty and ones for underrepresented minority faculty. And we talk about how we can improve the culture. <clears throat> and a lot of good things have come out from that. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Emily, uh, we, we are out of time. Uh, it, it's going to be very sad to see you go. And thank you for everything you've done for Princeton. It's been a pleasure getting to know you again back here. Um, so thank you. I just want to say that you know, I love Princeton intensely, and I my love affair with Princeton will never end. That's nice to hear. Yeah. I want to say thank you also to our producer, Danielle Alio, and to our audio engineer, Dan Kearns. And to the listeners, please come back. We'll have another fantastic interview with a Princeton woman in the near future. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.